On this week's 51%, we get in the holiday spirit and speak with chef Jennifer Clare for her favorite holiday cooking tips and recipes. I want the plate to be vibrant. I want those colors, the fuchsia of the cranberry, the orange of the sweet potatoes, the green of the green beans. Also, acid. I cannot talk enough about acid in terms of brightening food. We also speak with the winner of Netflix's mixology competition, Drink Masters. I'm Jesse King. It's all up next on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh or Lita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. The holiday season is well underway, and with it the rush of holiday shopping, wrapping, hosting, and of course, cooking. Food is easily one of the biggest joys of the holidays, but in the rush to prepare for the big day, or days, it can be hard to actually enjoy the art of cooking. Our main guest today hopes to ease those anxieties, give some advice, provide some inspiration, and help you spice it up in your home kitchen, no matter what you celebrate. Jennifer Clare is the founder of Home Cooking New York, a culinary school with more than 60 classes covering the basics online and at its location in Manhattan. Claire says she's always loved food, but it took a while to realize that she could turn that passion into a viable business. She's had a long journey shifting her career from history to the culinary arts, but she's since served as a food and recipe editor for media companies like The Wall Street Journal and Martha Stewart Living. Her podcast, Kitchen Radio, features a different home kitchen every episode, as Claire sets out to teach guests a dish they've always wanted to learn in the comfort of their own space. Teaching, she says, combines some of her favorite things. The creative environment of a test kitchen, the freedom to explore whatever cuisines and recipes she pleases, and the opportunity to pass that knowledge on to others. A good classic roasted chicken and gravy teaches people a lot. That basically, I can teach people how to make like, you know, roasted chicken thighs with a really good gravy. And that will cover how do you cook every piece of meat out there. Um, because just because we're cooking chicken, the, the same techniques about why you brown things and how you season them and how you get a crust and how you take the temperature so you know it's properly done, how to harness all the juices that come into the bottom of the pan and make a sauce out of that. If I teach you how to do that with chicken thighs, you're going to also know how to make a steak and you're going to know how to make pork tenderloin with like a dark cherry thyme jus and a steak with a classic red wine sauce and shallots. So that tends to be our baseline dish. That's if you're cooking meat. And if you're cooking vegetables, like if you want to learn how to cook with vegetables, we teach people how to make ratatouille. All the techniques that you can cover getting, you know, to the beginning of ratatouille to the end of ratatouille really helps open up people's understandings of how vegetables should be cooked. Because a lot of people, when they don't know how to cook something, they tend to stick to one technique that they are comfortable with and then they cook all their food that way. Whether they steam everything, they roast everything, they saute everything in butter, they microwave everything. I don't, like whatever it is, they find the thing that makes most sense. Whereas, especially with vegetables, there is no size, one size fits all. You know, you really have to understand what the vegetable is and how to cook it so it's the best of it could be. So with ratatouille, you're teaching people how to like, first of all, cut an onion and work with garlic and sauteing in olive oil and seasoning, but we also roast eggplant and zucchini so we can cover roasting vegetables as well in there. And then we, at the end, we add olives and basil 
we teach you how to chiffonade basil. Uh, and then when you're tasting something, how to season it. Because seasoning is not only just salt. I would say like people who, before they come to a cooking class, often will cook and be like, well, this doesn't taste very good. I will add some salt. <laughs> and while that is definitely a tool, there are so many other things you can do to make food taste better and not just salt. And so with ratatouille, we can talk about acid. We can talk about heat. We add crushed red pepper flakes. If it needs a little bit of sweetener, we add some tomato paste. So it's trying to understand what's missing in a dish and figuring out what ingredient you need to add to make it, you know, a complete dish. When it comes to, I guess, holiday cooking specifically, mm -hmm. what are some popular holiday dishes I think we usually did just like turkey, but people do that mm -hmm. for Thanksgiving too. Yeah. So is that normal to keep doing turkey yeah. for Christmas? Well, it, a lot of it is, it's all about like how you grew up because holidays are about replicating your childhood. Some people don't have great childhood, so maybe they want to start their own traditions. But most of us are trying to sort of harken back to like the things that we remember that were joyful. I mean, I'm Jewish, so I didn't grow up with Christmas, but my husband is not. And so we celebrate all the holidays because we he wants to remember his happy Christmases. Mm -hmm. So I defer to what he grew up with. So they had ham. So that's what I cook. But some people have lasagna for Christmas, you know, if you have Italian American heritage. Um, so we do the Christmas ham. But I, you know, there's a lot of I would say garbage hams out there. I don't want to disparage any brands, but like, you know, you can buy a lot of hams at a supermarket, but I'm really a big fan of like good ham. A lot of pigs are, are slaughtered much younger because people don't like fatty meat anymore, but a pig that is grown to the proper size that is marbled with fat, which is how I like it, is the kind of stuff you would get at a smaller operation or probably a farmer's market or, you know, again, a smaller farm. So their diet, if the animal's eating a variety of foods or foraging, the meat tastes way better. Whereas if you are eating a ham from a pig that had only, you know, corn and soy meal given to it by the farmer, it's not going to have a variety of taste. So if I'm going to get a ham, I'm going to probably buy one of these more bespoke hams that are, you know, kind of a ruby red marbled with fat and have a lot of good flavor. But of course, we're going to have latkes too and homemade applesauce and my kids always want to be involved and so and they obviously have a sweet tooth like most kids do so they take care of dessert and i'm not a big dessert maker so i'm happy to let anybody do whatever they want in the dessert department so in terms of like cooking for a larger group of people what kind of preparation is going into that like when should people be buying their ingredients if they're preparing for the holidays right now well, I always like to buy my ingredients early only because I do not like crowds in the supermarket. It gets me stressed out. But I definitely, planning ahead is crucial because otherwise, if you're, I'm not a stressed person in the kitchen at all. So I can plan the night before and be fine. But if you have to know yourself, if you are somebody who is not going to enjoy the holiday and all these people that you love are coming over or whatever it is, if you've chosen to host, do yourself a favor and be a host and enjoy it so like you can be at your own party you've spent all this time and so you can see these people you don't often see so map it out like i i love making a shopping list i write down like what i'm doing every day and also make sure whatever you're serving is not something that all has to be made the day of or even the day before make a bunch of things that can be prepped or made or frozen or whatever so you know, the day or two leading up to it, at least you've got some stuff in the bag and you're not starting from zero. So what you make is is sort of up to you, but making sure that you're being 
with a careful eye. Also with ingredients, like you can have a salad, but salad is something you kind of need to shop for like two or three days before. But things like sweet potatoes and potatoes and pasta and canned tomatoes, like depending on what you're making, make sure some of those ingredients are things you can like source weeks ahead. So you're not doing this massive, overwhelming freak out shop, you know? <laughs> like, so we're having a, a holiday party this Sunday. I have my shopping list. I've been like tearing things out of magazines for like the hors d'oeuvre table. I can tell you some of the things we're going to have here. Oh, I'm also, just so you know, I'm a culinary instructor. This is my livelihood. And I am still doing some pre-made stuff. Like I am not, I, people come here expecting, you know, a particular level of food, which is stressful enough, but I am getting like pre-made meatballs and I'm going to make my own like good marinara sauce with tons of garlic and stuff. But I'm like, I do not need to make 150 tiny little meatballs when I can source them from a company that I love that doesn't have any fillers. Like they're doing the same thing I would have done, but they've already done it. <laughs> so I'm getting meatballs. We're going to, I'm going to make latkes of course, cause it's the first night of Hanukkah, but I'm going to top them with sour cream and salmon caviar just to make it a little more fancy. Also just like I'm getting a huge bowl of really good clementines. They're called Sutsumo. Uh, they're actually mandarin oranges, but they come with the leaf still on them. They're beautiful. And this is when they're in season. Um, citrus has a season and it is in the in the winter. It's an inviting thing. It's orange, it's colorful, it's fresh. Uh, so I'll do that. And this was an idea a friend gave me, but like this goat cheese, like you just mound uh, fresh goat cheese on a plate and you make sort of a homemade fig balsamic glaze it's like fig jam balsamic vinegar and fresh thyme leaves and you drizzle this over the goat cheese and serve it with crackers and i'm like god that's again it's quote unquote homemade but what i care about is presenting something that's colorful something for everybody vegetarians non-vegetarians it's inviting it's delicious so whether i make that 100 percent or i outsource some of it that doesn't matter to me what about um, holiday cookies? Mm. Are there any like underrated or <laughs> underrated holiday cookies that we're missing? Well, I, so I am not of the rolling out and cutting out and decorating sort. It's a mess it and it's, it's just not right. So I feel like there's so many good holiday cookies out there. If you have little kids, you kind of can't get away from the whole gingerbread thing. So have at it. My youngest is 14 and they are very into baking. And so actually they just made a batch of cookies that are now going to be at the holiday party. And they're just a chocolate peppermint cookie. So it's butter, lots of brown sugar and vanilla and cocoa powder for the base. And then it's peppermint extract chocolate chips, and then crushed candy canes that you fold into the batter. Those are so good. That's chocolate peppermint. That makes you feel like the holidays, but it's chocolate, so it's decadent. There's no icing involved. There's no rolling involved. It's just like, you know, a drop cookie, like a chocolate chip cookie. One question we get a lot, uh, pie crust. Oh, okay. What is your go-to? Oh, so much. I crust? could have a whole program on making pie crust because we do a, a pie workshop at the school. Well, number one, use butter. Don't use Crisco or butter flavored Crisco because that's just people use shortening because it makes a very flaky crust, but it makes a flaky crust that tastes like wax or basically has no flavor. A pie crust is butter, flour, and water with some, you know, sugar or salt added in there. But the, the flour and the water make a dough and the butter is separate. So you basically have layers of butter and flour and water dough. The more layers you have in pie crust, the flakier it is. And the goal with a pie crust is flake. So keeping your butter cold and in separate pieces is what you want. So you're always needing to do everything with 
the coldest ingredients. So your water that you add to the pie crust has to be icy cold. The butter itself has to be really cold. Um, using a food processor is the best way to make a pie crust because you're not introducing the warmth of your hand. Like you can make pie crust by hand, but your hand is warm. And so if you overwork the dough and you soften the butter and it melts into the dough, then you don't get those pockets because what happens in the oven is a properly made pie crust is fat mingled with dough in the oven that butter melts in the crust and every place there was a piece of butter leaves behind a hole and that hole is a flake and so the more flakes and layers that you have in your pie crust the flakier it's going to be the more delicious it's going to be the more crumbly it's going to be you're trying to avoid a cookie texture in your dough when you take ingredients and you mix them all together amalgamated doughs where you cannot see the difference between an egg and a flour and anything then you get a crispy texture with a pie crust you want the opposite when you're rolling out your pie crust you should see fat all over it if it's got no variation of, of color or ingredients then you've overworked your dough so cold using butter good butter use the european butter which has a higher butter fat content which will also give you a better crust you know, I never think about how even sort of like the basic ingredients, there's like levels to what oh, would be yeah. a good butter versus a oh bad butter. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Every ingredient has levels. <laughs> levels and levels. I do, we do a supermarket workshop at our school, which I love teaching. And now it's actually a virtual class because it allows us to answer questions of anybody. But we do the supermarket seminar because people are often sort of overwhelmed by the supermarket itself. Like even before you start cooking, you've got to buy all these groceries. And because grocery stores are just enormous, some of them have 47 aisles. <laughs> and so it's this workshop where we teach people like how to select vegetables, how to select meat, how to select eggs, how to select dairy. And we tell you like what you're looking for and like how to tell the difference between like different kinds of butter and why you would care. And sometimes you don't care, you know, about the differences between tomato sauces or chicken broth. But a lot of times people don't even know how to make these choices in supermarkets. So you basically just are constantly making the same choice because it's familiar and it's easy. When you're looking at labels and stuff like that, yeah. are there some words that you should stay away from? Yes, and all some... the words you don't know. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> my rule of thumb is you read, the first thing that you read on a, on a box is the ingredient list. You do not look at the calories or servings or sodium or sugar. You can look at that after. First, you have to read the ingredients. If the ingredients read like a recipe for that thing, then fine, you can buy it. Like tomato sauce should read like if you were going to make a pot of marinara sauce and cookies should read like a cookie recipe. When it starts having words you don't know or don't even know how to pronounce or you can't buy in that supermarket, just go to the next package. Because again, when you are shopping, there's no, it's not like the 1950s where there was one kind of each thing. You know, there's so many. So get to know your chicken broths the 50 chicken broths that are in your supermarket start reading the side does it read like chicken soup like if you were to make this at home is there chicken in it are there carrots is there garlic or is there like yeast extract which is msg is there maltodextrin like when it starts to not look like food and it looks more like processed food or like science like a or science weird, like yeah chemistry. how to keep this shelf stable how to make it taste fresh how to yeah then it's time to look at the next package any basic, like either cooking myths or common cooking mistakes mm. that you find people making? Well, when it comes to like cooking meat, people often overcook because they don't know 
how to take the temperature of meat or they don't know when it's done or they don't even really know that there's like a done temperature. So I would say like, if you're going to cook meat, please buy a thermometer because the only way to tell when meat is done is a thermometer. Once it registers a particular temperature, like with chicken, it's 160 to 165 with pork, it's 150. So each meat that you cook has a different done temperature. If you don't have a thermometer, then you're going to be going on your own best guess or how, if you cut into it, you know, what color are the juices that are running, or I'm going to touch it with my finger and gauge it that way. Those are so imprecise. And because nobody wants to serve raw meat to someone you love, you're going to err on the side of overcooking it. Also, one thing about like Thanksgiving turkeys, depending on how you buy them, sometimes they come with a pop-up timer. I always say anything that comes with a pop-up timer, remove it immediately. Because let's just talk about our litigious society. That thermometer is not popping when that meat is done. It is popping when it is so overdone because God forbid it popped early and you got sick, you would sue that company and they are not interested in that. So those timers are not designed to pop <laughs> when the meat is done. It should, so to always take it out and use your own thermometer. For those who are maybe looking to spice things up this mm -hmm. holiday season, or like you said earlier, maybe they don't have the happy childhood memories yes. that they no normally associate with the holidays. Maybe they want to create their own. Yeah. Do you have any sort of like outside ideas of things that people can bring into their meals this holiday season? Well, definitely. I mean, when I cook, I cook with color in mind. So when you're making a meal, you need to think about that meal in your head. A lot of issues that I have with Thanksgiving is the brownness of <laughs> Thanksgiving stuffing, gravy, turkey, mashed potatoes. It's so brown and monochromatic. And so every time, you know, the cranberry sauce obviously jazzes it up, but I make sure that there are like bright orange things. Like we always do like a butternut squash soup or a sweet potato puree or, you know, blanched green beans or Brussels sprouts that have not been roasted because once you roast them, they turn kind of muddy green. So like, I, I want the plate to be vibrant. I want those colors, the fuchsia of the cranberry, the orange of the sweet potatoes, the green of the green beans. Ditto for any holiday cooking. It's the first thing is I map it out in my brain. And luckily in the winter time, there are so many colorful things out there. Pomegranates, clementines, uh, all the winter squashes are bright orange. You know, again, green beans, Brussels sprouts making sure that you're upping not only the visual appeal of your food, choosing foods that are colorful in their own right, but also acid. I cannot talk enough about acid in terms of brightening food. Americans really like to defer to like sweet food and salty food for sure. But acid is the thing that makes your mouth water. When you salivate, it makes you ready to eat. That's what wine does. When you drink wine, it's the, all that acid in your mouth, you know, sort of primes your body, your, your, your mental faculties, and also your stomach for eating. And so acid is really what keeps us delighted about food and interested. So making sure that everything that you're seasoning has some sort of brightness to it, whether it is vinegar or lemon juice or lime juice or orange juice or pomegranate molasses or pomegranate juice. There are lots of acidic things out there that can add brightness. Also making sure that there are fresh in addition to cooked foods available. And I don't mean salad. I don't mean like a whole hot buffet and then a salad because what I, one of my pet peeves is like, crispy salad on a plate with hot foods so it's wilting 
can't stand that. I like the European way of like having salad at the end or having it on its own plate so it gets to stay cold and crispy. But not just having salad plus lots of cooked foods, but also considering like fresh foods sprinkled on top of like your cooked food. So like chopped up fresh herbs, like fresh parsley and grated lemon zest and some chopped garlic. That's called um, gremolata. This mixture of fresh herbs and citrus zest and fresh garlic. You sprinkle that on anything, cooked meats or roasted vegetables. It's bright and colorful because it's uncooked, so it's bright green, but it's also enlivening. So you have this cooked, rich food, and then you have this bright, fresh, springy addition to it. So it's visually appealing, but it's also more interesting in your mouth. Gremolata. Remember that, folks. One of my favorites. <laughs> I mean, that's so funny when you talk about like Thanksgiving meals and stuff, too, though. Whenever I like see pictures of people like posting their Thanksgiving yeah. plates on Facebook and yeah. stuff like that, it's like that entire plate is brown. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like some people, I mean, I mean, some do incorporate a lot of color into it, but it's just, yeah. like, why do we keep posting these pictures that are all the same and yeah. they're all like not appealing? Yeah. <laughs> I'd say one, here's a, so to put in your bag of tricks is pomegranate seeds. Pomegranate seeds are bright, beautiful fuchsia. They're fresh, they're crunchy, they're juicy, and they're acidic. It's like you could not tick more boxes. So sprinkle pomegranate seeds on something. Your salad, they're great in salads, uh, but they're great on like blanched string beans or steamed string beans, whatever you want. It's great on sliced turkey. Like it just consider that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. You're um, welcome. That was all that I had for you off the top of my head. Is there anything that I'm missing that you'd like people to know? No, I don't want to overload anybody. Enjoy the holidays, folks. But, you know, color and acid. Those are my, <laughs> those are my <laughs> takeaways. <laughs> Jennifer Clare is the founder of Home Cooking New York, a culinary school with more than 60 classes online and in person at its location in New York City. You can learn more and find a list of their courses at homecookingny.com. Just a heads up, we're about to spoil the ending of one of Netflix's newest competition shows in this next segment. So if you're still making your way through Drink Masters, you've been warned, and I'll give you a couple more seconds to decide what you're going to do. Good? All right. Lauren L.P. Paler O'Brien beat out 11 other mixologists from around the world to earn the title of Ultimate Drink Master earlier this year. The show, which debuted its first season this fall, gives cocktails the top chef or a great British bake-off treatment, with contestants battling through a series of challenges to both reimagine classic drinks and come up with their own concoctions. O'Brien has been working her way through the Washington, D.C. cocktail scene for years, working her way up through some of its top restaurants as a bartender, beverage director, research and development consultant, brand strategist, spirits judge, and more. She founded two companies in the industry, LP Drinks Co. and Focus on Health. And even outside Drinkmasters, she's won several awards for her work. O'Brien says she almost didn't have the time to sign up for her Netflix debut. But she saw the show as a way to introduce the general public to the artistry behind mixology. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of that in a very special way, showcasing what I do, what people from D.C. do. And most importantly, being able to share those very important stories that don't often get told when you get to go into bars and restaurants. And it was a really special opportunity, very intimate in that, you know, this is a very, very first show of its kind. And and hopefully it's just beginning for what's to come. How much of it 
uh, was you coming in with a specific plan and how much of it was, you know, really had to be done on the fly or improvised? Did you have an idea of what they were going to have you do beforehand? It's an interesting question. So we certainly were um, given opportunities to gain a better understanding of the types of things they wanted us to showcase on the show. So basically it was like, you know, become familiar with clarification, become familiar with how to make foams and airs, become familiar with, you know, layered cocktails, um, hot drinks, cold drinks, that kind of thing. But it really was up to us to set ourselves up in a position where we were preparing and studying and leading into every challenge. There was a very limited amount of time we had before cameras were on and we were recording. Pretty spontaneous, but that's a day in the life of a bartender, truly. You know, we we spend a lot of time educating ourselves and doing our due diligence to ensure that we are um, to able to really act on the fly. That last challenge in the finale where you had to create a bar menu with three cocktail courses, how did you feel going into that challenge? Did you have any idea like in your back pocket that you were just saving for that final round? Yeah, for sure. So I, it's funny, prior to going on the show, I was like, it'd be really cool to find a way because the whole show was really it's focused on like deconstruction of drinks, uh, molecular gastronomy approach, modernist approach to cocktail making. And I certainly, the pastry training that I did going into the challenges really worked in my favor in the finale with a baked Alaska dish I did. I did not necessarily know I would be able to utilize it. I'm really happy it worked out that way. <laughs> um, but you know, it's really one of those things where a challenge is called and then you're going through your Rolodex very quickly. Okay, what can I utilize? What flavors do I want to highlight? How can I, you know, serve this base spirit in a way that complements everything I'm adding to it? And how do I also meet the prompt, right? So you're juggling all of these things. Um, but ultimately, the goal is to ensure that you are meeting the prompt, right? That's how you are successful. Yeah, it was... It's like the best thing I can say, the best analogy is like the first time you try to pat your stomach and rub your head at the same time. Um, but it certainly gets easier as you know you progress. It's so cool to watch the sort of the layers and work that go into pairing drinks with different foods or with determining like which flavors go best together. How did you develop your palate? How do you develop that sense of, okay, these go together? It's so crazy. You know, there are definitely very, very good guides you can reference. Flavor Bible's one of the best on the market, in my opinion. And it goes through um, comparing and contrasting flavor profiles that you can utilize in food and drinks. And I certainly use that to my advantage. Additionally, as you, you know, become senior and the roles that you have in bars, you are tasting a lot of things, a lot of pairings. Eating a lot of food, I go to a lot of restaurants, I love to eat. And a lot of that really does inspire the way that I make my drinks. Um, but many of the, I mean, and you could see this, many of the mixologists on the show, a lot of their lived experience, a lot of their, you know, exposure, the things they've gotten to eat and drink definitely came through in the cocktails they made at the end of the day. And it was really, really cool to see that um, be displayed. What was your introduction to mixology? What kind of work goes into making it a career? Yeah, you know, I uh, I was on a path of nursing and made the decision to kind of transition into something that allowed me to stimulate my mind in a, a, a much more positive light. Uh, ended up being pretty acquainted with a bar owner in D.C. and reached out and was like, hey, would you hire me to work at your place? I, I think it'd be fun to 
explore this as a potential hobby, not even an occupation, just a hobby. Definitely, definitely, definitely realized very quickly that it was something I loved. It was many, many, many days studying, attending trainings, being present in a way that allowed me to expand my knowledge um, and be exposed to new people, places, things, new foods, new drinks. There's always something to learn. I would be ignorant to, to state anything otherwise. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things about this industry. Uh, you're, I mean, you're always going to be in a position where you can learn something new. This might be a tough question, but what's your drink of choice right now? There's so many factors that it depends on. It depends on like what the ambiance is and the mood is for that evening. If I'm at home with my husband, is the Christmas tree up? Do I want a glass of Coquito? Do I want a gin martini with a big olive? It depends. Um, I'm always a big old fashioned girl. I love that you can really like use any base spirit, any, any flavored syrup and aromatic bitters, and you get such a different drink depending on the ingredients you put in that glass. So my go-to is a two ounce rum, quarter ounce simple syrup, two dashing Astora, stirred in a glass with a beautiful big cube and orange uh, zest on top, like it's frosty orange oils. So good, so good. Specifically for the holidays, do you have any recommendations for holiday drinking? Yeah, I'm a huge Coquito fan. Um, so it's a drink that hails from Puerto Rico. It is similar to eggnog, but very, very different. Um, rum-based drink. It is delicious. And if you ever have an opportunity to drink it, I highly recommend you do. Those recipes are so sacred, though. So good luck finding one. <laughs> um, they're passed down for generations, but they are absolutely delicious. Well, lastly, for those who might be interested in mixology, how do you get started? Or are there easy ways to elevate your beverage game? Start out with classic cocktails. You know, there are amazing cocktail books available online. Death & Co. is a good book. I, I really genuinely love it. Um, if you're trying to understand like classics and some variations on them. But play around with classics and then slowly deviate from those recipes, adding and taking away ingredients. And then as far as bar tools, I'm a firm believer that you should really just use what you have in, the, in your home. I have a mason jar at my home, Hawthorne strainer. You can get away with making a lot of cocktails with just those two things and maybe um, a jigger and a, a spoon. And yeah, I mean, that's a good place to start. As you become more immersed in this world, there are so many different things you can purchase so that you can elevate that cocktail experience, like a, a smoking box or an atomizer sprayer. And uh, you can really elevate that experience. L.P. O'Brien is the winner of the first season of Netflix's Drink Masters, which you, can obviously, which you can obviously watch now on Netflix. She still bartends and works as a consultant for establishments trying to curate their drink menus or build their brands. Her consulting company is L.P. Drinks Co., and you can find it at lpdrinks.org. She also runs a company focused on non- or low-alcoholic drinks and harm reduction called Focus on Health. You can find that at fohealth.org. L.P., thanks so much for speaking with me, and congrats. Yeah, of course, of course. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio in Albany, New York. 
It's produced and hosted by me, Jesse King. Our associate producer is Jody Cowan. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. And our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Jennifer Clare and LP O'Brien for joining us this time around. To learn more about our guests and the topics we discuss on this show, check us out at our website. That's wamcpodcast.org. We hope you'll join us next week. Happy holidays. I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself I was fifteen and a half, he was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool somewhere along the way At night and down the hallway, I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool Sweet bells in little girl dreams. They said,